Hello and welcome to Future Fundamentals, the podcast direct from the Chief Investment Office at Deutsche Bank's private bank that takes a long-term look at investment challenges. And in this episode, we're heading for the bright lights and asking what sustainable cities of the future might look like and what we need to do to make our current urban areas fit for future generations. If you believe in cities, you by default believe in a degree of publicness in public space, in publicly owned infrastructures. And it is absolutely no question that public transport needs to be the backbone of any good city. We need complete different kind of ways how we build our houses, but we also need the finance. So means investors have to rethink about the credentials on making an investment financing decision for real estate. I'm Guy Ruddle and I'm joined by two people who've put the way we live our lives and sustainability at the heart of their thinking. Regular listeners to Future Fundamentals will know Marcus Muller, of course. He's the Chief Investment Officer for ESG at Deutsche Bank's private bank and an economist by training. Marcus, good to talk to you again. Hi, Guy. And from the London School of Economics, we have Dr. Philip Rode, who is Executive Director of LSE Cities. He's also been leading interdisciplinary programs in sustainable urbanisation and transport for the best part of 20 years. So he probably knows what he's talking about. Hello, Dr. Philip Rode. How are you? Hello, Guy. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm well. Thank you. Great stuff. So let's uh, let's begin then, Philip. If we can start with you before we get into uh, what a sustainable city is, let's just have a a brief sort of scene setting uh, conversation about cities and whether we're becoming more urban as a global population, and what's happening in that in that regard. Yes, absolutely. So we definitely become uh, more urban. There is this uh, famous number of the percentage of people living in urban areas. It's supposed to be at 55% of the world's global population, and that should go up to 2050 to close to 70%. That's one way of thinking about it. Now, urban urbanization and urban areas doesn't necessarily equate cities because a lot of countries measure what is cities, urban towns, villages in very different ways. The EU has recently come up with UN Habitat and uh, other international organizations with a very different way of measuring urbanization. They just look at it through space, how the settlement structures evolve, and suggest that already today, 80% are living in towns and cities across the world and about 55% in proper cities. And Marcus, that makes the, the idea of making our cities more sustainable even more important, I guess. Yeah, of course, because we also need to think about how the different kind of groups in society will then live together. This while also the way of how we work will change, this might expose the society in general to some problematic circumstances. And at the same time, coming together in cities will also impose us to the challenge of so-called heat islands as cities are usually kind of conglomerates of concrete, as we know them today, right? In sealing the soil. And then with more weather extremes, more heat extremes, these societies will be exposed also to an environmental exogenous extreme and not just to the extremes from, from within. And this 
needs to be answered through the way of how we design cities. So, uh, Philip, you, uh, the audience, uh, because this is a podcast, can't see you. Uh, I can, and you're, you're nodding furiously at, uh, at, at what Marcus is saying. Uh, it sounds like, the, from the way Marcus described that, that, we, that it's not little bits of change we need to do. We, it's, it's, it's fundamental change to, to the way we organize our cities. Absolutely, and what is so important about it is that this fundamental change is fairly new, the recognition of it. We have been coming out of a period where we have considered the growth of cities and urbanization as a fairly linear process. But we're coming out of that period where we just celebrate it and completely accept it that any form of agglomeration, greater density, being closer together has all these economic, social, and increasing also environmental benefits. And we are confronted with uncertainties about the use of technology, how much that will disrupt the fundamental equation around cities, the scarcity of materials, the scarcity of energy, quite frankly, because the way we built cities throughout the 20th century was, of course, considering that we had an abundance of energy and materials readily available to just go full on in. And that, I think, will be something where new constraints will have to be considered and embraced and new types of urbanisms will have to emerge. And I, I promise we will get in a minute into the, the more of the detail about what a sustainable city the future might look like. But just a, th a thought from, from what you're saying, is, it, is there an inevitability about b becoming more urbanised then? Or, or should we perhaps be suggesting or trying to persuade people to be less urban th th than, they than they are at the moment? If we understand urban as the fundamental process of uh, exploring and exploiting greater efficiencies through our settlement structures to provide better access to services and goods and ideas, and quite frankly, to each other, that fundamental equation, I think, is very robust and will also be robust in the future. There are questions to what extent within then um, the agglomeration approach, we may want to opt for certain type of urban form which looks different compared to what we have done in the past. And if I may, we also need geographically to distinguish it, right? We have Europe and the Americas or Northern America, but we also have the big conglomerates from Asia, Southeast Asia, India, kind of own subcontinent and Africa. There we have many, many cities exposed to coastlines or at coastlines, which are then exposed to sea level rise. We have really the majority of the people also in these cities, I mean, these countries living in cities. Um, this must be addressed. And at the same time, um, water will be also a question because water is not really a given. And you guys, you maybe know it in, in the UK, the discussion you have in London, right, around the River Thames, um, what kind of role water can play. And this is a developed country. So we really have many, many challenges to address. But one important point, we need to enforce to a certain degree, this change. And this will be, of course, going against some expectations of current inhabitants of cities and also of, of mayors or city planners. Because, again, it's important. Past development was always accumulation of knowledge. But now we do not have the time for accumulation of knowledge, accumulation of change. Now we have to induce this change in a way that people are accepting this. 
So what fundamentally do we need to do differently in cities of the future than we do now, do you think? So a a relatively safe approach to this answer is to say, let's look at the sustainable development goals. You ask about the sustainable cities. So here we have 17 goals. They have um, relatively clear definition, and we can go through them and understand where did cities in the past deliver and really lived up to the expectation, and where do we have actual problems, if not even contradictions. And broadly speaking, cities actually very elegantly delivered on economic objectives. They led to the growth. They led to the innovation. They led to a whole range of scaling effects. So that is a big tip. The second, you could argue, is relatively uh, solid, is social development. The one thing where we really failed in terms of the type of cities we were uh, putting forward is at the level of global environmental sustainability. I'm not talking about environmental sustainability on the ground. A hundred years ago, the modernist thinkers were all about, yes, social utopia, but also uh, improving uh, access to light, fresh air, better water. And we actually dealt with this rather effectively. When I say the global equation around the uh, ecological condition and the environment, yes, we talk about climate change, we talk about biodiversity, resource scarcity, scarcity in a whole range of planetary limits where city development to date are ultimately not going, is not going into the right direction. So to come back to your overarching question, I think we collectively really need to combine uh, environmental sustainability with maintaining the social function of generating equity because otherwise we also have huge political problems in our cities. And and from my my point of view, I absolutely agree to what Philip said. Um, we also need to make sure that our cities are adaptive so that they can react and adapt in a way to environmental changes. While at the same time, we need to um, also design cities in a kind of circular approach, right? That we that we live from the things we get in the in the in the cities. Maybe we have to think about harvesting stuff, but we also need to think about the cooling effect. So we can't use all air conditions in the future. So we need maybe distance cooling. We need complete different kind of ways how we build our houses. Retrofitting is just one very simple example, but we also need the finance. So means economics or banks have to rethink or investors have to rethink about the credentials on making an investment financing decision for real estate. Um, I do not hear many, many people talking about this, what this means, because when it's right, what we are saying right now, many real estate we are financing as a global financial market as a whole won't gain any more finance in the future. So, but the things you're talking about here uh, are, are so massive in terms of change, uh, Philip, in, the, in, in terms of uh, social change, in terms of cultural change, in terms of financial change as well. That, 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 that's the sort of, I wonder how on earth, even if you can think it, you can actually do it and, and persuade people to come with you. So, you're absolutely right. And I think we must not be naive about people buying into something which is sort of a, a blueprint by 
thinkers and academics and people who you know have the time to uh, spend a lot of uh, energy on the future. The problem here is that we need to experience the kind of propositions, the kind of change that is being put forward. As long as it remains abstract, it's very hard to get the buy-in. So how can we experience it? There are two ways of doing it. One is through experiments in our own cities and giving a mayor, giving a political uh, leadership group the opportunity to, within a confined area, do something more radical, experiment. And we also need to be tolerant that an experiment may also may also produce failure. The other form of experience, uh, which isn't happening as an experiment in your own city, is by you visiting other places. And through those two dynamics, I think we can speak much more directly to uh, an individual who may be unconvinced, where we need to build up support and slowly make a strong case and prove and, and prove the concept of those broader general ideas we are talking about. And I think we can learn here from the new kids on the block, the countries of the global south, because when I look at Singapore, and then Philip is a better expert than I, but I also look at the Middle East, these countries are really change or try to change how they live or want to change how they live because they live already in weather extremes. They know what they need to do with many, many people on, on small small places, right? So we in Europe, we in, in North America, really can learn from listening to them. There's the point uh, about speaking directly to the needs and requirements of, of people is fundamental. And in the political debate, a lot of it will be brought back to how much does it cost? Um, you make comparisons and you are aware that um, uh, a certain means of travel um, is is just maybe beyond the means of the family and, and that's, that's problematic. On top of this, you have the cultural engagement. But if you believe in cities, you by default believe in a degree of publicness, in public space, in publicly owned infrastructures, in coming together, in people and culture and politics, as we know it from the good existing uh, cities. We can't and we don't want to eradicate that. Now, some desires go polar opposite to that type of uh, celebrating the city as a form of public domain, as a piece of public infrastructure. And I think there we need to be more honest in our discussions, not be lecturing, but be transparent in our argumentation and explain where the contradictions are and why, therefore, to go back to the example of supporting public transport, it is absolutely no question that public transport needs to be the backbone of any good city. You cannot have a good city without good public transport. And um, that is a very strong statement. If you come from other parts of the world, maybe particularly from the US, you would want to disagree. But I think one could have a very sophisticated argument to what extent suburban sprawl that goes into the horizon with cute little detached houses, massive private gardens, has anything to do with the original notion of a city where we come together and we share our infrastructures and we have public space and we ultimately engage uh, in a crowd, with a crowd of strangers, and we feel comfortable with that crowd. So that, I think that's another very political but important dimension. Yeah, I mean, the, the transport thing is, is just right at the heart of everything, isn't it? Yes and no. So transport in, in our assessment belongs to the 
key demands of humans, right? So we not just want to transport ourselves, we also want to transport things from A to B, which we have manufactured in order to exchange it to something what we couldn't manufacture to whatever reason, right? So this demand um, falls into the same bucket with um, um, mobility. So we have transport, mobility, energy, but also food and housing. So these are the things. And we also should not forget, um, Philip explained it very well at the beginning, why people are coming together, but people are coming also together to reduce risks, right? It's a kind of risk sharing, a pruning approach. And the risk of traveling a higher distance are falling apart if you live closer together. Also, the kind of question of defense to to whomever is, is really answered to, through coming together. But uh, this also requires a kind of cooperation and new ethical standards. So I think, and I completely agree with Philip, we need to really ask this question not in the style of lecturing, but um, in the question of how do we want to spend our future in the area we are living on or we are dependent on. And this, this is something which I currently do not see, but I also think for investors and for the financial market, there's a huge opportunity in starting to assess this development in a complete different story. And talking about investors, uh, this is obviously a, a podcast for a bank. Uh, so we should talk about the money side of things perhaps a little bit more before we finish. Uh, None of this is going to be, or little of this, I guess, is without cost. Uh, and I guess that one of the fundamental questions is, you know, who pays for this and how do we persuade them to pay for it? In the end, we all, because we are paying taxes, right? And taxes are used by the government um, for spending. So in the end, we all have to pay as always in, in every change and even in non-change we pay. So um, it's all, it comes always back to the individuals. But joking aside... The important thing is that we also, in this environmental crisis where we are in right now, the goal for a um, reform of our city planning must be superior over the cost. If we all agree that this is the only way for making ourselves, the way how we live, adaptive to a changing environmental future, we have to take this burden that the costs are maybe higher. Right? Because the goal of living in an efficient and, and peaceful way together is superior to this cost goal. Secondly, we need to distinguish between public goods and private goods. A public good or public common or however you would like to call it needs a complete different finance structure than my own private house. Right, And this is also, again, the question which can be answered by finance, but... Not each tool is the right tool for each goal. So public finance must be done completely different than private finance. So we are coming really back here also to the question of the banks, but also to the states. And Philip, in 20 years of, in 20 years of studying this, you haven't come up with a magic money tree solution. No, and I, I would, I mean, I, I was just about to say, I, I, I think recognizing that uh, we somehow need to induce a degree of greater willingness to accept that the collective uh, is a bloody good expenditure um, and, and that ultimately the individual benefits from that expenditure. And I think we have lost this to some degree, that sophisticated understanding that, you know, we are all in this, this together. There's another story to finance. At the moment, we are putting enormous amount of money in exactly the wrong type of infrastructure 
the wrong type of buildings, the wrong type of stuff is being constructed in almost any city around the world at this very moment. That's the first thing we need to stop. That will free up an enormous amount of money. And yes, will lead to, lead to a lot of pushback because they have vested interests. A lot of people expect that this just goes on. But this is the first principle that we need to dry out the finance that's currently happening in the wrong direction. How, how confident are we that the, the, the vision that you guys have articulated so well uh, today is, is, a, is, is, a, is a reachable goal? I leave the, the final words to my guests, hence maybe uh, allow me to start. So I'm confident but just under the prerequisite that the marginal cost of utility must become negative before we really structurally change. And those who understand this and prepared will be the, those who will find also opportunities in this. But I think, unfortunately, in some areas, it will get worse before it's getting better. But maybe I'm wrong footage here and we will find the opportunities a little bit earlier. So under normal circumstances, uh, so leave aside particularly global environmental crisis, the amount of change our political systems are able to deliver at the moment is just unbelievable. It is really happening so much uh, within even short periods of time. So we have all seen it in our own lives. Um, and uh, again, under normal circumstances, I would probably say we need to slow down, think of technology, how it overwhelms us. But then we go back to the challenge and the readings our scientists tell us when they look at our climate, when they look at ecosystems. And unfortunately, we know that we are just not even close enough to the speed we need to have in terms of a bracing transformation, particularly over the next 15 to 20 years. Now, where will this speed come from? There's an idea slowly emerging in sort of uh, social research, social science research around social tipping points. The idea that you don't need to wait until you know 80% of society has bought into something, but maybe already at 30%, you will all of a sudden see accelerated change where the majority of people actually embrace what initially only a minority uh, put, has put forward and embraces it as the new normal. And I think we need to live to a certain degree with the hope that many social tipping points are just around the corner. The way we, uh, we, we, we operate in our cities from a transport perspective, the way we live, um, the type of buildings, the materials, the consumption we embrace, the food we eat, these are all the, the big factors uh, where we are dependent on, in some ways, inducing imminent social tipping. Well, that's as good a point as any to uh, to draw this conversation to a close. I fear we've barely scratched the surface of this topic, but uh, at least we have scratched the surface. Thank you both very much uh, for your time today and your wisdom. That's Marcus Muller and Dr. Philip Rode. If all that's done is whet your appetite for more information about sustainable investing, you can find it at deutschewealth.com. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. In Europe, Middle East and Africa, as well as in Asia-Pacific, this podcast may be considered marketing material, but this is not the case in the US. No assurance can be given that any forecast or target can be achieved. Forecasts are based on assumptions, estimates, opinions and hypothetical models which may prove to be incorrect. 
past performance is not indicative of future returns. Performance refers to a nominal value based on price gains and losses and does not take into account inflation. Inflation will have a negative impact on the purchasing power of this nominal monetary value. Depending on the current level of inflation, this may lead to a real loss in value, even if the nominal performance of the investment is positive. Investments come with risk. The value of an investment can fall as well as rise, and you might not get back the amount originally invested at any point in time. Your capital may be at risk. The services described in this podcast are provided by Deutsche Bank AG or by its subsidiaries and or affiliates in accordance with appropriate local legislation and regulation. Deutsche Bank AG is subject to comprehensive supervision by the European Central Bank, by Germany's Federal Financial Supervisory Authority and by Germany's Central Bank. Brokerage services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated a broker-dealer and registered investment advisor which conducts investment banking and securities activities in the United States. Deutsche Bank Securities Incorporated is a member of FINRA, NYSE and SIPC. Lending and banking services in the United States are offered through Deutsche Bank Trust Company Americas, member FDIC and other members of the Deutsche Bank Group. The products, services, information and or materials referred to within this podcast may not be available for residents of certain jurisdictions. Copyright 2022 Deutsche Bank AG and or its subsidiaries. All rights reserved. This podcast may not be used, reproduced, copied or modified without the written consent of Deutsche Bank AG.